0: Welcome to the To Love, Honor and Vacuum podcast. I'm Sheila Gregoire and I blog every day at tolovehonorandvacuum.com. I am the author of The Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex and 31 Days to Great Sex. will be coming out with Zondervan this summer as well and I have some awesome sexy dares on my site. So we are all about sex and right now hey, we're almost at Valentine's Day. Tomorrow is Valentine's Day. And ladies, I hope that you have made an effort to make this romantic for your husband. Uh, often on Valentine's Day, I think we women are so quick to expect that he will romance us. But how about you romance him for a change and let him know that you love him and that you're glad you're married to him and that you want him and all of that. That's super important. And as I was trying to figure out what I wanted to talk about on this podcast, I I thought, hey, it's Valentine's Day. We can talk about how to get spicy or how to make sex feel great. But you know, I have done a lot of that back in 2019 on the blog. Um, I talked a lot about how to spice things up, how to make sex feel great. We did we did posts on uh, multiple orgasms. We did posts on G-spots, like Theology of the Clitoris, all that great stuff. And I will put links to some of those in the podcast description, the podcast post that goes along with this podcast. And so I thought, you know, I don't really want to reiterate that. I, I, want, to, I want to take a slightly different take on this, which is, when there's something like Valentine's Day coming up, a lot of women get kind of like, oh man, seriously, like we just get discouraged about it because it's like, oh, now I have to perform or "Oh, now I just, I, I feel inadequate and now this is even more making me feel inadequate and it can just be hard to get excited about it. And so what do you do if you just find that, yeah, I, I just find it hard to get excited about sexuality. I mean, sex is just something on my to do list. It isn't something that I really love or crave. And I don't know, there's parts of it that feel kind of icky. Like I just I just don't get what all the fuss is about. And I'm not only talking about libido, although I do have, of course, my Boost Your Libido course, which I would point you to if you do have struggles, feeling like sex is great. Uh, That's got all kinds of great information on understanding how libido works physically, but also emotionally and spiritually and relationally and all that wonderful stuff. But I want to talk just in general about what it means today to be a sexual being, to embrace the fact that you do have sexuality, to feel good about your body. We were talking last week about how to feel comfortable with your body. And I want to continue that conversation this week in a slightly different way and say, how can we appreciate our sexuality? How can we appreciate our bodies and how they were made for sex? So I want to start with a reader question that came in. She was reading The Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex, and she said, she has a question, and she quotes me in this. She says, you were created for sex. It's deeply wired into you, into the very center of who you are. You are a sexual being. And she says she's been thinking about this line of thought a lot of over the past year as she leads youth groups and as she works through a lot of the issues of singleness, etc. And she feels like this line of thought is identical to that of society. You are a sexual being and therefore you need to be true to who you are in order to be fulfilled as a person. And I know we're approaching it from a God created you in sex standpoint, but if something is that like that is at the center of who we are, then how can we be happy without sex? Why would God create people with sex at the very center of who they are and then expect some people to never have sex? And then she says, I'm not saying sex isn't created by God or isn't a great gift. I just wonder if telling people that they were created to be sexual and that it's at the very center of their being is helpful or even really true. Great question and I'm going to answer it and then I'm going to bring my daughter Rebecca on and we're going to continue this conversation. And here is what I said to her. I think it comes down to how we see sex. We think that sex is about intercourse. He puts his penis into her vagina. But sexuality is much more than that. When we say that someone is a sexual person, we're not just saying that they desire intercourse. It's that we're hardwired for deep intimacy, for passion and for connection. It's that we're made to experience life physically, not just intellectually and emotionally. Our senses matter. We're made into physical beings and we're made for deep communion with others too. With singles, our sexuality and our desire for deep communion is met most with God, but with married people, we're also deeply connected and in communion with our spouse because sex really is more than just physical, it's everything all wrapped up together. And so I think when we stop talking about wanting intercourse and start thinking just about expressing sexuality it makes a lot more sense that we want communion with others that we want to live a passionate full life and that part of passion is going to be in the physical realm with our senses and not just intellectually Uh, that physical connection to others but also to just the world in general actually does matter including to our bodies by the way I think when people run away from sex, they're often also trying to live very much in their heads, you know, trying to be in control of everything, trying to have everything figured out and have everything all nice and in pretty packages. But to be sexual also means that you're willing to live a life a little bit out of control. You're willing to let go because that's what orgasm is after all, and let yourself be carried along and live in the moment. So that's what I said to her and I want to explore this a little bit more today with Valentine's Day coming and with trying to figure out how we can be happy that we are sexual in the middle of winter when it is cold and when we're about to be buying chocolates and roses and feeling like we're all connected or feeling like we're supposed to be and not all of us feel that way. So Rebecca, what do you think of my answer?
1: Yeah, no, exactly. I think that the whole idea about sexuality often is the antidote to this over-intellectualization of life Mm -hmm. that we can be prone to. You know, we want to have very quick, easy steps of how to do this and how to do that. And the problem is that we are beings who have this libido energy. Mm -hmm. right? And that libido, we use the word libido often just to mean sex, but a lot of times when libido is used, we actually mean something more just like general life energy. And I don't mean like new agey, like chi or anything like that, but I just mean the general belief that we have an energy towards living. Mm -hmm. We are drawn towards things that are living, things that feel like they have like vivacity, that kind of thing, right? And of course, sexual libido is going to be part of that. The problem is when we limit it to sexual libido, we almost actually, I think, create a kind of lifestyle where sexual libido doesn't actually flourish, Mm -hmm. you know, like if sex is completely separated from everything else that we do, then it becomes very compartmentalized. And the problem is in order to really enjoy sex or want sex, you kind of got to let it infiltrate the rest of your marriage too right like the whole us doing dishes together isn't him doing dishes so that he can then do the sex thing (laughs) it's part of our sexual relationship that we're partners who help each other and who are there for each other and who meet each other's needs not only in the bedroom but like other places as well Mm -hmm. and i think that's just something that we miss a lot of the time in this talk about sexuality because we think about sexuality as who do you want to do deed with right right and 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 that is definitely part of it but i also think that our sexual energy infiltrates more than just the four walls of your bedroom yeah it's
0: it's just about the way that you see life and the way that you get yeah. turned on to life and i think that's what you're talking about where libido is more than just sex it's like are you turned on to life <laughs> it's not about
1: arousal it's just about your your outlook on life we wrote a blog post a while ago about just having fun in your marriage again and about how can that, that can really amp up your sex life as well. Mm-hmm. Because when you actually instill a bit more of that life, that excitement, the joy, the giggling, the teasing, the flirting, the fun, the silliness, mm-hmm. the ridiculousness yes. <laughs> back into your marriage, it all connects and it becomes this general lifestyle that is one that is life filled. And that's what sex is supposed to be. It's supposed to be a life-giving, life giving life fulfilling experience between a married couple. And so if your whole relationship is marked by this feeling of just vivacity, you know, sex becomes a lot easier.
0: It really does. And I think that is what sexuality needs to be. It's this longing for connection at every level, but it's also this, this understanding that it isn't an intellectual thing. Mm-hmm. it is we can't overthink it it's just something that you're going to experience and so as we experience more of life together as we add that fun and that laughter we're going to find our sexuality gets a lot more turned on as well and I, was it the gnostics I, i'm getting i might be getting my heresies wrong here but that separated the body from the soul and saw the body I as it was something Gnosticism. yeah saw the yeah. body as something that was bad and the soul that was something that was good and i think that we have continued that uh, in our society and in, in the church as we see the body as bad. We see the basic drives as bad. We want to control our bodies, beat them down. And then somehow in the area of sex, you're supposed to do the opposite and suddenly like your body again so that you can get turned on. And it's it doesn't work that way.
1: No, it's really a lot more difficult than that. If you have turned your body off for so long, mm-hmm. you have to retrain yourself. Whereas what if we just taught people how to just live life for the sake of living life for Jesus. Smell the roses, people. Like, <laughs> engage, yeah, exactly. engage your
0: senses. You know, go for hikes. Stretch your muscles. Um, listen to music. Like, engage your senses. You're allowed to feel. Like, I think we've just gotten away from feeling and smelling and listening. Mm-hmm. And, we, and we think Everything is about thinking because we're we're an information based society, right? Where everything on your phone, it's about information. Think about how different life was. You know, many hundreds of years ago where life was much more physical. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, you know, you you walked around in the muck and you you walked places. You didn't drive in your nice little cars that protected you from all the elements. Like life was very physical and we've gotten away from the physical side of life. And I think that's actually taken away some of our sexuality. And so we need to embrace our senses again. We need to realize that it's not an intellectual exercise, sexuality. It's just embracing who you are and embracing that you experience life through your body. And even mm-hmm. and even when you're single, you can do that to a certain extent. And that's how single yeah. people do have sexuality. You know, it's okay for a single woman to want to have a pretty bra, even if no one
1: else is going to see it. <laughs> yeah, you know how many of my friends I brought, I brought to lingerie stores to get them really nice silk nightgowns, even when they were, like, when they were single, because I wanted them to get to feel like a up. Mm-hmm. You know and and that's okay because it's part of just liking
0: pretty things and liking feeling things and that's all part of being a woman and that's all part of sexuality and so let's embrace that part of it turn on the rest of your life turn on your senses and you'll find that sexuality becomes something that is much more a part of us rather than this compartmentalized
1: element or something that rules over us
0: Maybe you're engaged and you're wondering what sex is actually going to be like. Or maybe you've been married for a while, but you're wondering what all the fuss is about. I get it. And in the Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex, I lay out how God made sex to be awesome, physically, spiritually, and emotionally. Check it out today. As we're talking about how to embrace sexuality, see sexuality as a good thing, I want to bring up a reader question, which I think a lot of us have. You know, what if there are just certain connotations to certain aspects of sex, which are kind of icky? And so this woman writes, why do men particularly love receiving oral sex? What is it about that particular act that makes it something they desire more than any other forms of sex? It seems like in every single story I read these days about sex abuse scandals, it's almost always oral sex that was demanded or coerced. It's to the point that it's hard for me not to associate it with situations of abuse, intimidation, or the demeaning of women, and so it's really hard for me to imagine performing it on my husband, regardless of what an amazing, loving person he is. Can you help me understand what the deal is and offer some suggestions to help dissociate oral sex from such awful negative connotations? Yeah. Great question. And you're right. Oral sex is a huge part of a lot of abuse stories. And I think what's important to remember is that in abuse situations or assault situations, it's not usually about sex as much as it's about power. Okay, it's that urge to dominate that urge to control that urge to have somebody who must do your bidding that urge to feel like you're totally in charge. And that can have a sexual aspect to it. I mean, we see it in the whole Fifty Shades of Grey thing. Like, there are women who get really turned on by the idea of being dominated, and it certainly is a huge turn on to a lot of men. And so, power gets so mixed up with sex. I think there's some spiritual reasons for that. Remember when Jesus said, you know, you have seen the Gentiles lord it over each other, but it should not be so with you. You know, with you, you're supposed to serve one another. And so Jesus was setting up this distinction between the world and the kingdom of God, right? He came to bring the kingdom of God and the kingdom of God is diametrically opposed to power, to the idea of people exercising or lording power over one another. Those things do not go together. And that by the way, is why a lot of church scenarios don't work today. Sometimes why marriage advice can be so toxic is because it equates these spiritual relationships with some sort of a power hierarchy, which must be enforced. And whenever we get these people lording power over one another, we come outside of the kingdom of God and we come into the world. Okay? So we know then that people lording power over one another, people trying to dominate or control one another is not of God. That is of the world. And yet, why is it that it's so tied up in sexuality? And I think it's this distortion of sexuality. Sexuality is supposed to be a deep knowing of one another. It's it's that word that God uses in Genesis 4, Adam knew his wife Eve and they conceived a son sex is not just a physical act, but it's a knowing in all different levels. It's a knowing someone else completely. Um, It's knowing them emotionally and spiritually and physically. It's all tied up and it's supposed to be this deep intimacy. When that is going to get distorted then sex becomes instead of a deep intimacy, instead of a deep knowing of one another, it becomes a, I get to dominate or use you. And it's actually a total disruption of intimacy, of feeling like you are one, because now the other person doesn't matter. The other person only exists to me in order for me to use them for what I want. And it's that using them that can then get this sexual thrill because we've replaced intimacy with power and domination. And that can get messed up in both men and women. It's not it's not just men who mess this up. Like I said, Fifty Shades of Grey, who reads that? It's women. And I understand that that there can be some primal urges where, you know, we do, we women do want to feel out of control. And sometimes we do want to feel, you know, that the guy is in control in the bedroom and that, you know, we're serving him and all kinds of different sexual fantasies can come into play there. And I'm not trying to say that all of those are sinful. It's not what I mean, but I do think that there's this sense where we operate under different values and different guiding principles than the kingdom of God when we replace intimacy with power and domination. And so that is what is so often happening, is that sex becomes about power and the turn-on becomes about power rather than what God originally intended, which is that the turn-on is that we know each other completely. And... The interesting thing that we found in our studies again, is that the women who feel the closest to their husbands, who feel like their husbands truly do know them in every sense of the word, who feel like, and we are walking partners through this life together. They're the ones who are most likely to reach orgasm. So it's that closeness, that emotional vulnerability that causes orgasm and sexual responsiveness. When we operate under the world's values though, and by the world, I'm not I'm not trying to say that all Christians have this together and non-Christians don't, because non-Christians can actually operate under Kingdom of God principles when they adopt this idea that we're supposed to serve each other and when they get rid of the idea of power and domination and using other people. So I'm I'm not trying to set it up as an us versus them. I'm trying to set it up as a worldview. But it's that vulnerability that is the doorway into intimacy what happens though when you don't have that emotional and spiritual vulnerability with each other that you do need in order to feel that deep connection because emotional vulnerability that's what feeds arousal that's what feeds that that desire for each other so if you don't have that then it can be replaced with a different kind of vulnerability in other words with physical vulnerability and that's where we get into a lot of the bdsm stuff uh, where you just want to feel like you're being overpowered where that becomes what's arousing. So instead of instead of being fully naked to someone else in every sense of the word, emo- not just physically, but emotionally and spiritually as well, we just simply become physically vulnerable. That can be arousing for some women and some men, but it's also the flip side of that where you get to dominate that can be still so arousing. So with that whole preamble, and I know that was very long, I just wanted to go into that there are some spiritual ramifications for this. Why is it that oral sex is so often associated with domination, I think it's because she is very vulnerable. In many ways, she's more vulnerable during oral sex than she is during intercourse. I talked about this actually in the video that I did about Andy Savage's uh, sexual abuse of Jules Woodson. Andy Savage from High Point Church who resigned from there and is still going and being a pastor again even though he is not qualified anymore and he's disqualified himself for how he acted in that situation with Jules Woodson. But oral sex really does have a big power dynamic. And because of that, it's often a big element of abuse and assault, certainly. It's also a huge element of pornography. It puts the woman at a very vulnerable place where men are using her. to be totally crass, it's easier to film oral sex than other forms of intercourse. And it makes sex something which is completely about him getting what he wants. He doesn't have to think about her at all. And that's what porn does is it rewires the brain so that what's arousing is an image or a video rather than a person. And in this particular case, what you're doing is you're pairing this idea of him using her with his sexual arousal and response. And so oral sex can certainly have this connotation of domination of him using her of sex being totally impersonal of her just being an object for him to use certainly can have that connotation and i understand that and it's everywhere that being said it doesn't need to have that connotation i think it's important to understand why it can get that way And that we don't want it to get that way in our marriage we don't want anyone to feel threatened we don't want anyone to feel degraded that shouldn't be a part of your sex life it really shouldn't but if oral sex can be simply a way that you make him feel good and that you're able to do willingly and that you don't feel like you're not in control like he isn't forcing you in any way i think that it can be a healthy part of a sex life The nice thing about oral sex too, if you are in a healthy sex life, is that he doesn't have to worry about pleasing you. So it's one of those ways where something can be completely and utterly for him. When he's having intercourse with you, hopefully if he's a good lover, he is thinking about how to make it pleasurable for the woman. Um, Whereas this is a way that he just gets to be Minister to served however you want to say it. And and so that's often why a lot of guys really like it because it is very pleasurable. It's a lot more relaxing because they don't have to worry about the woman and they just get to revel in the feeling. And there isn't anything wrong with that, especially because he can also reciprocate for her. I think there is something very wrong with it if it is what he prefers to intercourse. Okay, if oral sex becomes something that he wants, because he likes the feeling of being the only object of attention, and he doesn't want to actually have to worry about her. Or if your sex life is really about him reaching orgasm through intercourse, and then he also wants this sometimes, and he isn't doing anything to make her feel good, then that's a real problem. And that needs to be addressed because sex is supposed to be mutual. But I think that there are a lot of sexual acts and there's a lot of things about sex that have really been stolen from us and perverted by the world. And it's okay to reclaim them. It's okay to say, no, I want this to be a good part of our sex life but in a very different way from the way the world does it it's not going to be about utter domination and power and being used it's just going to be about fun and about giving pleasure and about making someone feel great and letting him be the sole object of attention because that's just cool and fun, but then it's also going to be reciprocated. So if in your marriage, it really veers more on the domineering and you don't feel safe and it's uncomfortable, then bring that up. This is not something you need to do. Or if oral sex is something which causes you flashbacks of abuse or trigger something, then again, it's not something that you have to do. By no stretch of the imagination do you have to do any of this. If, again, you do have sexual trauma in your background, I really do recommend seeing a licensed counselor to help you deal with that, someone who's actually equipped to deal with trauma. But no, you do not have to do it. But I think there's also a lot of benefit in us as Christians recognizing that just because the world stole something beautiful from us does not mean that we can't also take it back and reclaim it to what it was originally supposed to be. The kingdom of God makes itself known by being about love and serving each other. And sexuality can be a big part of that, the way that we love and serve each other. The world, is all about domination and using people and so let's try to keep those two things very separate in our marriages and make sure that love is not about dominating someone, not about power, not about using someone but is instead about experiencing something wonderful together where we truly do love, serve and please each other in a mutual way. So we want to feel healthy and embrace our sexuality and like the fact that we have sexuality. But the truth is that a lot of people feel very uncomfortable with sex and with the sexual aspects of their bodies because of trauma in the past and that trauma can take all kinds of different forms we've talked a lot about uh, sexual abuse and i've got several posts on that Uh, we've talked a lot about the sexual abuse crisis in the church all of these sorts of things and that can really impact how we feel about sex and if that is your story of course please see a licensed counselor who knows about evidence-based trauma therapies because you're not supposed to live with that but there's also other things just life things that can make us feel like there's something wrong with our bodies and which can make enjoying our sexuality really difficult. There's the simple one, you know, what if you developed when you were 11 and you had A huge bust and then that became a source of big derision for everyone in your class and you got made fun of a lot or bullied a lot or what if you just grew up feeling like you were the source of all evil because you were told that your body was going to cause guys to lust and so you had to cover it up and that can cause a big problem but I want to tackle one that we haven't talked about yet because we've talked about all those ones quite a bit um which is this question A woman writes and asks, can you look into PTSD from being spanked as a child and how that leads to sexual dysfunction later on in marriage? For example, as a child, my father would beat me with a belt while he held me down on my stomach on my bed. The church accepted and promoted this abuse. This is so very wrong and evil. How can experiencing physical and emotional abuse that creates blood flow and pain to the same parts of your body that are responsible for sexual arousal not affect your sex life as an adult? I have flashbacks from the abuse every time my husband wants to do certain sexual positions, and I have broken veins on my left leg from contusions and bruises from the abuse. I have met with three separate Christian counselors and have given up seeking help because all three counselors sided with the church's view on spanking. All right. I'm going to bring Rebecca on for this one, too, because uh, she did a lot of research into spanking when she wrote her book, Why I Didn't Rebel. Uh, and this, this can actually be a real issue.
1: Yeah. I first of all do want to say that like, this kind of spanking, where you're being beaten with another object, is actually considered child abuse in Canada. Yes. Like, that is actually illegal. To mm-hmm. do in Canada. Yes. And I don't know actually what it is in the States because I didn't study psychology in the States. I studied it in Ottawa. But if you find out that someone is beating their child with an object, no matter if they're calling it spanking or anything else, you act- that actually is abuse. Right. And just as a reminder, if you are a teacher, a nurse, a doctor,
0: uh, a minister, anyone who is a required mandatory reporter, you are required to call Children's Aid uh, and report that.
1: Yes, even if you think, oh, well, they're probably over-exaggerating, if you have even the slightest inkling that something might be going on, you are required to report.
0: And even if you are not a mandatory reporter, that does not mean that you don't have to report or that you shouldn't report. It's just that mandatory reporters must report. Exactly. But the rest of you, you have a perfect right to pick up
1: the phone and call as well. Exactly. And so I do want to say that, that a lot of people who were spanked were not beaten. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and that is, that is a very important distinction to make. But when it comes to the actual research into spanking and its effectiveness, pretty much what we found is that at best, long-term, it does nothing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, the thing is, when you spank a kid, it gets them to stop the behavior immediately. So it has a lot of short-term effects, right? right. Like you spank your kid because it means that they stop picking on their sister because mm-hmm. they don't want to get hit again. hmm but there are so many other parenting strategies that have been shown to work long term to improve parent-child relationships, to decrease rates of mental health issues, to increase, you know, positive character traits and feeling of closeness as a family. Whereas spanking, in the good cases, it doesn't seem to have any like statistical significant, statistically significant effect.
0: Yeah, because there's a big difference between changing someone's outward behavior and actually training their character.
1: Exactly. And so pretty much what it finds is that you are much more likely, if you have been spanked as a child, to not feel close to your parents, to have mental health issues, to become aggressive yourself, and to have behavioral disorders. Now, some of that might be chicken and the egg. Kids' behavioral disorders are more likely to be spanked. Right. But a lot of the things like mental health issues or even just the deep feelings of being a close-knit family, they do think there is at least a partially causal relationship between spanking just simply makes you feel not quite as close or trusting of your parents. And these are studies that were done with just a hand, what you would consider tame spanking. Mm -hmm. So not this beating thing, just... This is not... This wouldn't even be in that study. Right. Okay, but Becca, you know
0: what the pushback is going to be. You got a lot of it when you wrote Why I Didn't Rebel. You had people who refused to endorse the book
1: because you said that. Mm -hmm. Because aren't Christians supposed to spank? Isn't it in the Bible? Yeah, and the reality is that is one of those topics that has been debated a lot. Mm -hmm. You know, and there are a lot of different opinions as to why it doesn't mean what we think it means. And I find them quite convincing, especially when you look at the research that shows that spanking kids doesn't actually make them look more like Christ. Okay, so so Spare the Rod, Spoil the Child is not in the Bible. No, it actually is in this weird poem that's about like BDSM from the 1600s. Okay, so that's gross. Yeah, I actually looked up the etymology before we did this podcast. It's really weird. It's pretty much like he's a bad little boy, so hit him. Mm-hmm. or else he'll be a bad husband. Okay. It's really weird. Okay, so so that's not in the Bible. What is in the Bible, though? So there's a verse in the Bible that says, he who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly. Mm-hmm. Right? And so that's the verse that a lot of this is really hinged on, is sparing the rod hates his son. Right. So I talked to one theologian who has done extensive research into this, also talking to expert rabbis and people who really study the Talmud, because this is part of the Jewish Orthodox um, text as well. right? And his name was Samuel Martin, I believe. I yes, Samuel yes. Martin. Samuel Martin. Yes, mm-hmm. and he's got a whole book on this, which is quite interesting if you want to read it. But some of his core arguments, which I'll just quickly put in here, are first of all, in Hebrew, there are a lot of different words for child or son. The, and we don't have those words. We have pretty much baby, and child. Mm-hmm. We don't have a word to say, we don't say my adolescent. We might say my teenager these days, right. but that's even only in the last 60 years, 70 years. Right. Right? So we have, it's, it's my child. And even when you're a grown up, you still say, oh, he's my son. You don't say he is my son of the middle age of his life. You don't say things like that. Whereas there actually are kind of words that depict that in Hebrew. Yes, Katie is still my baby. Yes, yes. But exactly. We talk about it differently than this other language does. And so there actually are words where you would say, you know, there is a word for child that means a child kind of between the ages of three and seven. I don't know what exactly is off the top of my head, what the different age ranges are, but pretty much Mm any time that there is a specific word for child used, it is specifically the word for a teenage boy. Okay. Not prepubescent child. And then... Every now and then they use an overarching child term. But anytime it's specific, they use the specifically teenage boy. And so we have to go by the specific most translation. Mm-hmm. So first of all, if we want to actually follow the Bible, you should only be spanking teenage boys if you believe that, that means spanking.
0: Right. So because when we spank, we're usually
1: talking about two-year-olds, or four-year-olds, or six-year-olds. In fact, most Christian advice says you should never spank a kid over the age of 10. Right.
0: Even some, I've even seen some over the age
1: of six. Yeah, which is completely opposite of what this text is saying, according to this theologian who's done a lot of research in this. Mm -hmm. And then another thing that he points out is that society was just so different at that time. Like, for instance, these boys were getting married and having families of their own, and they were going to have wives and children who depended on them by age 20. Mm -hmm. And they lived in a culture where if you did something bad, you could be killed.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Like that. Mm-hmm. And it really wasn't that big of a deal. Like this happened. Mm-hmm. And so what he was arguing is that first of all, even if we just go on the age thing, we're doing it totally wrong. And so even just with that, you should never be spanking a kid under the age of like, you know, whatever puberty is. Right. But then on top of that, we don't live in the same culture anymore. And the reasons they were giving for this is like if you don't do it, someone else is going to. Mm-hmm. Right? And so it's better to have, like, kind of a, a, a more gentle correction from your parent than to be, like, stoned to death by the rest of the community. Right. Right. Another critique that I've actually read recently since putting out the book is that Proverbs is a book of poetry, it's not the same thing as Leviticus, where he's giving examples of what you should do in each offense. Mm-hmm. And this is a very symbolic example of what parenthood should look like, taking a shepherd's rod into consideration. And the rod is what the shepherd uses to guide the sheep. Okay. So this is another, I'm just giving you multiple explanations just to show you that there is not one clear-cut example of what this means. And so we can't necessarily just say as a Christian, it means you have to spank your kids or else you hate your kids. Right, right. Right? But what if this verse actually means something along the lines of, you know, Maybe it is about how, you know, if we don't do this, someone else is going to do it worse. Or maybe it's also about, you know, discipline your children because you love them. The way that a shepherd guides his sheep into the way that is right, Mm -hmm. you know? And these all do not lead to having your child strapped down on a bed while you beat them. That's right. And it doesn't lead to taking your three-year-old over your knee and hitting him. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, it really doesn't because there are better ways that are research backed up and are also biblically accurate to teach your kids how to behave well, that are effective, that promote familial closeness. And that are protective factors against behavioral issues and other mental health issues.
0: And I want to point out a resource that I just love for all of this stuff, ConnectedFamilies.org They've written a lot about spanking, but more importantly, they write about positive discipline. So their book is called Discipline That Connects, and it's about how to connect with your child's heart so that you empower them to make good decisions. You help them see Christ in you, see what Jesus wants from them, and it's not about curbing outward behavior. Again, it's about connecting with the heart so you actually change the character and that's what we're trying to do so just take a look at them connectedfamilies.org I do want to come back to this letter writer uh, just one more element of what she said which I, I want to bring out let's leave the spanking to the side for a minute but this last bit that she says I have met with three separate Christian counselors and have given up seeking help because all three counselors sided with the church's view of spanking if you are in a church which says that you must beat your child in order for your child to grow up to be a Christian, please get to
1: a different church. But also recognize that a lot of parents will come to you in a church and say, I spank my kids, but they won't explain what they mean. Mm -hmm. And that is incredibly dangerous to immediately say we are a church who endorses spanking. Right. Because a lot of dads like this will use that against their children. Yeah. This
0: is abuse. And it sounds, though, like she actually did explain it. And there's still Christian counselors who sided with the church's view of spanking. And yes, there are Christian counselors who will do that. Um, I've written a lot about some of the dangers of the biblical counseling movement, which is very rooted in maintaining a power and hierarchy view of family where the father is over everything. And the wife is in full submission to the husband, and then the kids are in full submission underneath of that. And it's like the husband is in charge of the family rather than God. And I don't personally believe that that is the proper view of the Bible or of authority or of power. I think Jesus said that the Gentiles lorded over one another, but it shall not be so with you, and that we are not supposed to be exercising power like that, so... There is a strain of counseling, which can actually do more harm than good. And again, I will link to some of those posts in the podcast description. When I say biblical counselor, I don't mean Christian counselor. <laughs> there are wonderful Christian counselors, but a biblical counselor, I hate the term because it sounds like you're talking about Christian counseling. It's actually new, it's something called new ethic counseling. And it's it's saying that the only resource that we need is the Bible. So we don't need modern psychology. We don't need any evidence-based things. We don't need um, any certainly any mental health drugs. Uh, What we need is just to understand the Bible. And of course, it's to understand the Bible in the way that they interpret the Bible. That's not safe. And if you are in a Christian community, which is interpreting the Bible that way, just know that that's a minority. And this is what I really want people to hear. We were blown away when we did our survey of 22,000 Christians. Becca, one of the things that surprised me the most was how few women actually ascribed to a lot of these things. We weren't asking specifically mm-hmm. about spanking, but we were looking at power relationships and um, some of the views of sex that we we found so problematic and that so many churches teach. And we found that the, actually the vast
1: majority of Christian women don't think that. Yeah, the vast majority of Christian women really have a healthy understanding of you know, authority in marriage and have a healthy understanding of their value as Christians. First, not just as wives, but as women of Christ. Mm -hmm. So what that
0: tells me is that there are a lot of healthy resources out there. It just may be that you can't find them because in your little bubble, they're not there. So, So burst the bubble. Burst the bubble. Please don't give up on the church altogether. Please do not give up on Jesus. There are people who love Jesus who would... Label all of this stuff abuse, and if you've gone through this, um, if you're struggling with this, if this is marring your ability to feel sexual because of these these things in your past, and the counseling that you've received has not been helpful, search for a licensed counselor who is is experienced in trauma therapy and in evidence based therapies. Not just on their interpretation of the Bible, there are wonderful Christians. Who do that? Who have the proper education and who are licensed? Um, and so, no matter what your issue is, whether it's it's like this woman who has physical abuse in her past, whether you have sexual abuse, whether you have sexual shame, find a licensed counselor to talk to about this because you are not meant to carry this with you, and God does want to see you find healing. And if you're in a church situation, which is making that healing more difficult, then yeah, burst that bubble, um, seek out other kinds of help and find those licensed counselors. Perhaps this has been more of a serious podcast than people were really expecting for my Valentine's Day one. (laughs) But I wanted to bring up some of the roadblocks that we often do have from embracing sexuality because a lot of us are just given very negative messages about sex there's so much crap out there in society which really wrecks sex, and we've often had a lot of history of really bad stuff about sex. And so, the ability to embrace life, embrace life through the senses, embrace your body, see sex as a positive thing, that can take a lot of getting rid of garbage below the surface. And so, I hope that I've maybe pointed you in some good directions on how to start doing that, and that it is possible to overcome some of these hurdles of how we see sex so that we can embrace it the way that God intended. And as Valentine's Day is coming up tomorrow, I want to really put a big shout out for my 24 Sexy Dares. I wrote these first for last Valentine's Day. Uh, they sold really well. A lot of couples have said that they just love them. But there are twenty-four different scenarios or prompts that you do just to bring some life back into your sex life. There's eight that she takes the lead on, so she gets to read the little scenario and then and then do it. Um, then there's eight that he gets to take the lead on. And there's eight that you do together, and I really designed them so that they fit with really the heart cries that a lot of us have when it comes to sex. So for women, a lot of the dares that he does for us are focused on building our sexual confidence making us feel sexy, figuring out what arouses us, figuring out how to reach orgasm, um, letting you be the center of attention, all of those fun things that can make sex so much more interesting and fun for women, especially when that's been a roadblock. And for him, a lot of the dares are focused on spicing things up and helping him experience a lot of excitement and also making him feel wanted, like you really desire him. And as you do these things, you'll find, hey, you know, this isn't this isn't hard, this is kind of fun and It'll give you some new things to try just in your regular sex life. They don't need to be this big production. Um, they're all, all of the dares are super cheap. Okay. It's not like I'm going to say on any particular day that you need to go and you need to spend $60 or something like these are all really inexpensive things. It tells you clearly on the dare whether they're done at a certain time of day or where they're done and just to add a fun element to your life. So pick those up. They make a wonderful Valentine's day gift, especially for husbands. I think husbands especially would love this and a lot of higher drive wives would love it too or just women who are trying to figure out what all the fuss is about it helps you slow down and experience sex the way it's supposed to be where it is about mutually loving and serving and it's not something which is degrading or using each other so i will put a link to those in the podcast description you can get them in my store and I hope that they help you spice up your Valentine's Day. So thank you for joining me for this a little bit heavier podcast, but I hope it's given you a lot to think about as you realize what God made sex for, how he designed sex, and how we're supposed to be turned on to all of life. And I hope that I can help you do that. Certainly, I hope I can get you turned on in your marriage. And thank you for joining us at to love, honor, and vacuum where we make life and marriage into a passionate adventure and not just a to-do list. Remember to rate the podcast for five stars on iTunes or wherever you listen to it and leave a review. It just helps other people find it. And it's also a huge encouragement to me. Uh, Another huge encouragement, if you have read any of my books like The Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex, please remember to write an Amazon review for that as well. Because again, it helps other people pick up the book and learn what God really did make intimacy for.